Good morning, church. Welcome back to our first on-site service, the first time in a long time. And I was told that uh, today we are fully booked, but you are the only ones who showed up. And so may the Lord bless you, and may the Lord also bless those who did not show up because He is a good God. <laughs> we welcome you to a new September series on the church and the world, specifically the church in the midst of a changing world. Now, when we talk about changes in the world around us, the list can be very long and broad. Talk about the pandemic alone, it brought us, it will bring us a never-ending list of changes around the world in the way we conduct commerce, in the way we dress, uh, even in the way, even the change in behavior towards one another. Or we can talk about the changes in our very own landscape. So the papers tell us that by 2030, uh, many exciting developments will have been completed in Changi, in the southern coast, and in Sentosa, to uh, name a few. But as God's church, we want to talk about change in the world's attitude towards God. What is happening in the city of men? The city of men, also known as the earthly city, which is another way to describe the world. What is happening? We do have a condensed answer to that from God's word. First slide comes up. And God, God's word tells us, excuse me, that in the last days, which is our present times, shall come times of difficulty. The Apostle Paul warns us that people will become lovers of self, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. And Paul warns us that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. There are times of difficulty because the world will not embrace love for God and the things of God. And the world will certainly not accommodate those who promote God and those who promote His will. So if you tuned in um, last Friday to Sam Albury's uh, observations, he pointed out some major cultural shifts that have appeared in the last decade or so. So he observed, along with others, that, slide comes up, that firstly, the world's moral intuitions have changed. What does he mean by that? What determines right or wrong is no longer based on reason, but it's based on instinct. It's based on feeling. Right is now whatever is freeing. Right is now whatever's fair. Right is now whatever's not harmful. And then wrong is now whatever's oppressive or feeling oppressive. Wrong is whatever feels discriminatory. Secondly, people's view of sex and marriage have also changed. Sex is now simply seen as recreation. It used to be procreation and enjoyment in marriage, but now it's simply seen as recreation. And marriage is now just a romantic 
contract. So when you don't give me flowers, you don't sing me love songs anymore, as the song goes, the marriage can then end. Couples can then terminate marriage. Number three, Christians, God's people, are no longer seen as old-fashioned. They're no longer just passe. The church is instead is seen as bigots. To the world, Christians are psychologically harmful because they disagree with another's freeing lifestyle. So Christians are now seen as unhealthy to be around with. Why? Because they are dangerous. So those are some observations of cultural changes and shifts that were observed. And these strengthen the case that the world will not embrace the love of God. The world will not embrace the things of God. And so how must the church, God's people, respond? We need to look again at our identity and at our calling. And so what is the church? Next slide. The Greek word ekklesia, from which the word church comes from, simply means called out. Called out. God calls out a people from the world to become his people. And this is reminiscent of God's calling out the Hebrews from Egypt in order to worship him. So they are to become his nation. They are to become his possession. And this is what we have just learned from our series from 1 Peter, didn't we? That we are a chosen race, that we are a royal priesthood, we are a holy nation, we are a people for God. But unlike the Hebrews that were plucked out and separated physically from the Egyptians, we, the church, we are not plucked out and moved into an island or a country. The church is called out of the world, and yet her calling is for the purpose of being called into the world. Yes, though we are a chosen race, though we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God, Peter says there is a purpose. And what is that purpose? It is so that, so that you may proclaim His excellencies. It is so that you may proclaim Him who called you out of darkness and into light. So we are holy, called out, set apart, but in order to be called into the world. So it was the early church father, Augustine, who calls this living in two cities. The church is the city of God, located for now in the city of men. One city is heavenly, the other it's earthly. One has Jesus as king and her citizens are the redeemed who love God. The other, the earthly city, has rulers who will always compete for power and domination. And their love is always for the self, never for God. 
And so, what is your identity? What is your identity if you happen to belong to one city, but you currently live in another? Well, you could be called permanent residence. Uh, say your citizenship is Aussie and you happen to live or reside in Singapore, you are a permanent resident. Or you could be a foreigner. Say you are from India, and, but you presently work here or you presently study here. You are a foreigner. Foreigners and PRs, permanent residents, are terms that we use to describe the identity of one who belongs to another city and yet resides in a different city, one who belongs to another city, but presently resides in another. But to the Apostle Peter, that person is called a sojourner. Slide comes up. He is a sojourner. He is an exile. And then, next point, to the Apostle Paul, he has another word for that. He calls it ambassador ambassador. Sojourner, exile, ambassador. Those are our identities as a church, as citizens living, or rather citizens of the heavenly city, but presently, currently residing in the earthly city. And those identities carry responsibilities and spell out our roles in the earthly city, our roles in this ever-changing world. Firstly, as exiles and citizens of another city, our responsibility is that we, first point, we give our primary allegiance to the king of the heavenly city. So our primary allegiance our primary, primary loyalty is to the king of the heavenly city. Our secondary allegiance, we give our secondary allegiance to the rulers of the earthly city. Why? Because we are called to submit to earthly rulers and authorities that have been placed by our heavenly king. And so we are to obey them so long as they do not force us or order us to disobey our king because our primary allegiance is to the king of the heavenly cities. Our primary allegiance belongs to him. Secondly, as exiles and citizens of heaven, we must, we must never feel at home in this world. Nor must we wish this to be our home. So, Story was told that somebody, somebody's husband passed away. And in the wake, she was saying, oh, too bad, he missed out on block. Because if he were to live and experience the on block, then he would have experienced living in a better place, in a newer place. But that is an example of wishing the present home to be your home. We must never feel at home in this world, nor must we wish this to be our home, nor must we expend all energy to make this like our final home. So, you know, I 
love watching videos of home renovations. Why? Because I like to fix things. And uh, I saw a video where one homeowner who loves Japan so much, he designed his uh, HDB flat to look like a Japanese home. Have you seen that one? Designed the HDB flat to look like a Japanese home with tatami beds and tatami seats and sliding doors, uh, shojis. But will this home, will his home, ever be similar to a Japanese home? Will it make him stop visiting Japan once traveling resumes? I doubt so. Because we can never make this earthly city like our home, like our final home, the heavenly city. So it was the writer to the Hebrews who says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So our identity as exiles and non-citizens does not call for us to try to transform this earthly city. We are instead exhorted not to be conformed to the patterns of this city, of this world. And so what this means in the midst of many disturbing cultural shifts is that the church can remain unmoved, unshaken, because our ultimate hope is never placed in the earthly city. We must always tell ourselves that until Jesus returns to usher in his kingdom in its fullness, there can, be, there can never be utopia in this world. We cannot transform this city this world to be like the heavenly city. In the meantime, we can trust that God is sovereign over all things, even in the midst of threatening and confusing cultural changes. But how else do we live as exiles and sojourners and citizens of another city? Well, Jeremiah chapter 29 tells us this. Let me read that again for us. Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 14. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Very famous passage 
declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So when Israel was taken to another city, God sends a message of instruction. He sends a message of hope because of his great love for his people. And his message to the people in exile in Babylon is this. The exile is going to take some time. A few generations, in fact. It's going to take some time. And so, do not get scammed by the fake news that it will be over soon. That's a lie. That's a trick. That's a deception. And get this. The message says, Stop being too Zion-minded and be of no use to Babylon. Instead, be so Zion-minded that you are useful to Babylon. That is the message of Jeremiah here. And you ask, how does that work out? Well, firstly, the exiles, they can all long and they can all grieve to be home. Psalm 137 is actually evidence of that. Flash that slide, please. Psalm 137, they sing and they say, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So to be Zion-minded is to lament of the present situation, of the present exile. It is to declare allegiance to the Lord still and to insist that true lasting joy can never be found in, 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 in Babylon. That's why they say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? True lasting joy cannot found in, can never be found in Babylon. And so being Zion-minded is to lament. It is to grieve of the present state because one is living in a world that does not know God. One is surrounded by a climate that will have no room for God's will. Next slide. Secondly, to be Zion-minded in a foreign land also meant 
to continue to live distinct lives apart from the Babylonians. Next point. See, God's people are to carry on living holy lives unto the Lord. Lives that set them apart from the locals. And we see this in the prophet Daniel, for, for example. Daniel who uh, refused to defile himself with the king's food. We see this too in Daniel's buddies. You know, his three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All three of them who refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. They did not conform and give in to the idolatrous lifestyle of the world where they were in. And we also read that when King Darius signed the 30-day uh, prayer ban, no praying for the next 30 days except only to Darius, Daniel continued to pray to the Lord three times a day without fail. That, my friends, is Zion-mindedness in a foreign land, living godly, distinct lives in the midst of a people who do not know God. Next, being Zion-minded, well, it shouldn't stop at just lamentation or just living differently. Jeremiah calls on them to be useful to Babylon, to bless Babylon. So they are to be Zion-minded, yet Babylon useful, or rather Babylon mindful. So they are to shorten their days of mourning and they are to start settling down. That's why the Lord instructs them to build houses, to plow fields, to get the farm going, to enjoy the harvest, to marry, to have grandchildren. In short, it is eat, drink, and try to be merry even in captivity. And then they are to pray for their captors. They are to seek the people's good. They are to look into their welfare, despite the fact that they are enemies of God and His ways. And again, Daniel showed us how that looks like when he served, remember, two Babylonian kings faithfully, when he rescued all the wise men from being slaughtered by the hot-tempered or bad-tempered king, when Daniel faithfully interpreted the dreams of the kings to warn them and to humble them as the Lord leads him, that is being Zion-minded, yet Babylon-mindful. The Apostle Paul echoes such exhortation when he reminds us that though our citizenship is in heaven, it is good and pleasing to God when we pray for all people, when we pray for rulers so that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives in this world. That, my friends, is a picture of foreigners praying for the peace and good of the people of a land which is not their home. Interesting, right? 
foreigners praying for people in a land that is not their home. That is being Zion-minded and Babylon-mindful. It is being holy and worldly. And that, my friends, is how we live in this earthly city as exiles and as sojourners. Our mind is in the heavenly city. We live distinct holy lives. Our primary allegiance is to the King of Kings. But at the same time, we are mindful of the earthly city. We pray for the people of this city. We seek their good. We seek their welfare. We seek to bless them. And John Stott described this as holy worldliness. Holy worldliness. It sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Holy and also worldly. Well, not until we look at Jesus and we look at, once again, at his coming in the flesh. So John Stott writes, and let me quote him, quote, Nobody has ever exhibited the meaning of holy worldliness better than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. His incarnation is the perfect embodiment of it. On the one hand, he came to us in our world and assumed the full reality of our humanness. He made himself one with us in our frailty and exposed himself to our temptations. He fraternized with the common people and they flocked around him eagerly. He welcomed everybody and he shunned nobody. He identified himself with our sorrows, our sins, and our death. On the other hand, in mixing freely with people like us, he never sacrificed or even for one moment compromised his own unique identity. His was the perfection of holy worldliness. And now he sends us into the world as he was sent into the world. We have to penetrate other people's worlds as he penetrated ours. The world of their thinking as we struggle to understand their misunderstandings of the gospel. The world of their feeling as we try to empathize with their pain. And the world of their living as we sense the humiliation of their social situation, whether poverty, homelessness, unemployment, or discrimination. End of quote. So in following our Lord Jesus, John Stott says, we take on a God-given double identity. It's a double identity that God has given us. Holy and at the same time, worldly. So how do we live as exiles and sojourners in an ever-changing world that continues to uh, reject God? Jesus is the answer, friends. It is to look to Jesus. It is to look at how the Holy One became worldly. Now, not only are we sojourners and exiles, 
we are also ambassadors. Ambassadors. That was how Paul sees himself. Now, friends, the word ambassador in the original language aptly describes the Apostle Paul as a wise elderly man, more like a senior. And yet that word is used in both uh, political and religious spheres. Political, it's a representative of a nation. Religious sphere, it is used as an emissary of God. Now think Babylon again. See, Daniel was an exile. His name had been changed uh, by the king, Belteshazzar. And yet his role remained as an ambassador for God. In what way? Well, Daniel brought message from the Lord through the interpretation of the dreams. Daniel was, in, in the book of Daniel, was the man from Judah who told the king that the only God, only the God in heaven reveals the mystery of his dream. And in the end, this led to King Nebuchadnezzar to proclaim that Daniel's God is God of gods and Lord of lords. One can therefore say that Daniel was indeed ambassadorial. The Apostle Paul exercised his ambassadorial role as both God's messenger and God's promoter. Paul sees himself as appealing on behalf of Christ. And that is why his constant message is be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to Jesus. Now, if we see our role in this earthly city as an ambassador from another city, then our energies won't be spent in criticizing the culture of the earthly city. Because ambassadors ought not to be doing that unless it's from the U.S. of A. Ambassadors ought not to be doing that. Instead, ambassadors, they live peaceably in the city of their assignment, trying to understand the culture, while at the same time promoting his city, his nation. And so in the midst of cultural shifts and changes, the church should see herself as an ambassador in the earthly city that does not know God. And how do we do so? We, remember First Peter, what we learned? We conduct ourselves honorably among them. We honor everyone. We honor the emperor. We seek peace and we pursue peace. We bless and with gentleness and respect, we give the reason for our hope in the heavenly city in a winsome manner and always with humility. Because after all, our heavenly residency is not attained by merit nor privilege. It is only by God's grace. Humility then 
should always be our posture, even when this earthly city would not respect the ambassador. So once a father uh, lamented to me of his son's departure from faith. The son doesn't want to come to church anymore. He doesn't want to have Christian friends. He do just doesn't want to have anything to do with Christianity. So I asked the father, how did you respond? It's aching. He said, well, I told him that he will have to leave the house and stay on his own because my household believes in God. So when I heard that, I urged the father and I told him, instead of threatening to kick the son out of the house, which he may even look forward to, why not win him over back to faith? Why not show him the goodness of fearing the Lord? Why not be ambassadorial? Because such are the times we live in, friends, when the younger ones will have different moral intuitions. They have different moral intuitions and they will always view us as a threat, as a danger to their freeing lifestyle. In the midst of such changes, remember, Jesus is still Lord. We need not be anxious. We must stick to our identities as exiles and ambassadors to be holy yet worldly and to carry out our roles seeking the good of those who have yet to know Jesus, their welfare, their peace with all humility. So that on the day of the visitation, when Jesus finally ushers in the heavenly city in this renewed world, they will glorify God. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we ask for your enabling to be ambassadorial, to live distinctive, distinct lives amongst a people who do not know you. Use us, we pray, with all humility to explain the hope that we have of the heavenly city while we await for Jesus' return to usher in the new heaven and the new earth. And so people will glorify you. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.